The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 3, 8 through 20. The word of God speaks to us like this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all of the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply, multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Thanks, April. Well, good morning. My name is Bryce Johnson. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I would love to get the opportunity to do so. Um, as Zach shared, we are taking a break from the Gospel of Mark to observe Advent. And Advent means coming or arrival, and it's a season where the church historically has set aside time to specifically remind ourselves that God came to us in Jesus, that uh, this reality of the incarnation that he put on flesh, he lived among us, and ultimately came so that we might be reconciled to God and to one another. And as we look back on Jesus' first coming, Advent reminds us to long for his return because Jesus came once, but he's also coming back. And he's going to come back and fully establish his kingdom. We believe that Jesus is coming back, and so Advent is filled with hopeful longing for his return. And so Advent consists of the four weeks leading up to Christmas, and so we're going to take the next four weeks to look at some specific themes of Advent, and we're going to look at them through the lens of four passages in the Old Testament. And this week, we're going to look at the theme of hope, of hope. Now, this past week, my wife and I uh, were late to the party, but we finally started watching Ted Lasso. And, uh, and if you haven't uh, seen Ted Lasso, it's this uh, show that's really uh, become wildly popular. And the premise of it is uh, you have this uh, college football coach uh, who's transplanted to England to coach soccer. Um, and just everything that, that, that goes around with it. And it's just filled with positivity, wholesomeness. Um, actually, everything around Ted is not positive. Um, it's, it's, it's a little 
uh, crazy, a little crass at times, um, but he's this ray of good-naturedness. And it's been wildly popular, and part of it is because when it came out, it came out last year during the pandemic. In April of 2020, the U.S. Census Bureau did a survey of 1.2 million homes and asked questions like, do you feel hopeless? And the survey found that 48% of Americans who filled out the survey considered themselves hopeless during the pandemic. Nearly half of all Americans surveyed raised their hand and said, yes, I feel hopeless. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're still there. And as critics rushed to figure out what made Ted Lasso so popular, they came to this conclusion because it fills us because he fills us with hope in an otherwise dark season. He's this picture of hope and what it could be. Now, the Bible talks about hope a lot, and, and it's a little bit of a different picture than Ted Lasso. And so we're going to look at biblical hope. And this morning, we're going to be looking at and answering three questions. Three questions. We're going to look at what is hope? Um, why do we need hope? And the third question is what is our hope? What is hope, why do we need hope, and what is the Christian's hope? And so what is hope? When we use the word hope, we typically use it to signify something we're desiring for in the future, right? It's future-oriented, and it indicates this longing that we have. So for example, I might say, I hope my daughter doesn't get an ear infection this week. We use that way. Um, She gets one about once a week these days, and so, but, but I hope that she won't. Or as someone who grew up in Dallas and doesn't belong to the cult of the Kansas City Chiefs, I might say, I hope the Cowboys make it to the Super Bowl this year. We might say, we hope for peace in our country. And when we use the word hope, we mean we want a certain outcome in the future, but we're not sure if it's going to happen. Right? It's filled with uncertainty. I can say, I hope my daughter doesn't get an ear infection. And maybe she won't, but maybe she will. I I don't know. I hope the Cowboys make it to the Super Bowl. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, but they probably won't because they have a way of, you know, getting your hopes up high, and then around this time of the year, they lose three out of four, and they're like, we look like trash. We hope for peace, and maybe we'll get a few days of it, but probably not. See, when we talk about hope, we usually mean uncertainty. And what this is, is this is worldly hope. Worldly hope is essentially crossing our fingers and saying, it'll be okay, it'll be okay, things will get better, things will get better, and hoping and trusting for that. Really without knowing, without any certainty or confidence that things will actually get better. Right? At the end of the day, worldly hope is just wishful thinking. But that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. In the Bible, Hope is rooted in certainty because hope is rooted in the faithfulness of God. Biblical hope is grounded in assurance that what God promises he'll do, he will do because he is faithful. In Hebrews 10.23, the author says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us hold fast this confession of hope. Why? For he who promised is faithful. See, faith is holding fast to God's word, believing what he has said and what he will do. And hope is a component of faith. Pastor John Piper says that hope is faith in the future tense. Hope is faith looking forward. 
And all of us live with hope, and we place our hope in all sorts of places. But as Christians, our hope is not in wishful thinking, but it's hope that's anchored in the unchangeable God himself, his very character, who he is, his nature. And faith and hope is looking at the promises of God and being certain that what he will do, he will do because he is faithful. And so why do we need hope? Well, if you've been alive for the last two years, you know why. Third point, I'm just kidding. The, the, the last two years have been incredibly difficult, right? At times, things have felt hopeless. We saw the survey. Nearly half of Americans say they feel hopeless. But crazy viruses and racial tensions and hostility and economic hardships didn't just start in 2020. We know this. So we've got to go back to the very beginning. In the first two chapters of Genesis, you see that God made everything. And what keeps getting repeated over and over and over is that he made everything and he made it good. The universe, the galaxies, the world, the, the plants and animals, everything he made was good. And then he, God created humans. And when he gets to humans, the Bible says, it was, he looked at it and said it was very good. And he gave them meaningful work he, to, to, to work the land and bring order and to do what, what, what he did in the cosmos. And then he placed his image on them so that they would display to the world what God was like. And he even gave them, gave them his own presence, gave them intimacy. Things were amazing. Adam and Eve had this beautiful relationship. They had, they had, they had everything, right? They had the pleasure and warmth of the sun that God gave them. They had the coolness of the night, the animals and the birds and the fish to enjoy and to take care of. They had purpose in their work, and they were bringing order and God's rule and reign in the world. They had everything, but they had one prohibition not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, hey, you can have that tree, and that tree, and that tree, and that tree over there, and this tree, just not this one tree. And it seemed simple enough, right? If you've grown up in church, you know the story. One day the serpent rolls up, slithers up, really, to Eve, and starts up a conversation, and he says, hey, did God really say that? Did God actually say not to eat any of the trees? You know that if you actually eat it, you'll become like God, and he doesn't want you to become like him, so really he's holding out on you. And Adam and Eve, instead of trusting the goodness of God who had literally given them the world, who had given them life, who had given them himself, instead they trusted the serpent. They trusted their own ability to look out and see and make decisions for themselves what was good for them. Friends, this is the heart of sin right here. We trust our own understanding instead of God's, our own ability to decide what's right and wrong. We decide or we doubt what God would say for us and believe the lies of the enemy that he's holding out. And so what happens after they eat this forbidden fruit? Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 6, if you have your Bibles. If not, it'll be on the screen. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She looked out. She, she decided that this is true. She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is it this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So what happens when they rebel against God and sin? Well, first, they're filled with guilt and shame over what, they're done, of what they've done. See, being naked and vulnerable, which didn't matter before, now becomes a bad thing as, as they lost the sense of the covering of the Lord. And they sow fig leaves to cover themselves, hoping that that's enough to hide the mo- their most vulnerable parts. Hoping that with enough leaves, enough, uh, enough coverage, they'll project a better identity. And then they, they, they blame shift. They, they, they point to one another. They point to everything else besides themselves, not taking ownership of their own sin. It's always someone else's fault. And maybe worst of all, they, they hide from God. I was thinking about it this week. Even though they had no reason to do so, they had no pattern of behavior to assume that they should be afraid. And yet, they become afraid of God and want to hide from him. The divine presence, which was once a joy, now becomes a threat. Friends, is this not the pattern of sin in our own lives? Cycling through guilt and shame, covering ourselves, hiding from God, afraid that he's upset at us, blaming others, blaming our circumstances for why we sin? Is it just me? Moreover, in the next few verses, we see the continued effect of sin as we see that God tells Eve that childbearing, this, this great privilege um, tied to filling the earth and subduing it, it's not going to be filled with pain and discomfort. Any moms in the room? Anyone care to, care to disagree? We see that marital relationships and relationships in general are now broken as men and women have these conflicting desires and men will bend towards arrogance and being domineering. Sin will cause men to want to oppress and dominate women. We see that work, instead of being something that brings you joy and fulfillment and purpose, will be difficult and draining, sucking the very life out of you. Anyone here relate to that? The very creation that is supposed to be ruled over by humanity will rebel against humans. And one day, everyone will return to dust in death. And we see that humanity is actually banished from the garden. This place where heaven and earth touched, they lose this intimacy that they had with God. So so here's what Genesis 3 is telling us. It tells us that sin has this cosmic effect that ripples out through the universe. It's it's sort of like a virus that goes out and infects everything that it touches, spreading into every nook and cranny of the creation. See, sin did not just cause this minor hiccup. It vastly corrupted the entire creation created order, distorting and damaging every aspect of creation. Human relationships are broken, and we see this in marriages and families, just like in Adam and Eve, and divorce and broken families, and the reality of orphans and widows are evidence of this. Miscarriages and infertility. 
the wars and terrorism and, and mass shootings are because of this corrupting effect of sin, racism and injustice and oppression are because sin causes us not to see the image of God in others. Poverty and inequality exist because sin reigns in the hearts of men to hoard possessions, money, and food. Even our relationship with the created order has been destroyed. Friends, tornadoes and freak ice storms and global warming and global pandemics exist because the physical world, the Bible says, groans under the curse of sin. And even our view of ourselves has been distorted as we no longer see ourselves as image of God bearers who are worth anything, who have value and dignity and purpose. A deep brokenness and depression sink in because our minds and our bodies have been touched by the brokenness of our world. And our relationship with God broke as we no longer had the same relationship with God. A holy and righteous God does not mix well with sinful, rebellious people. And here's the thing, you don't have to be a Christian to sense that something is off, right? You don't have to believe in Jesus to know that pain and heartbreak and injustice and disaster is not how things ought to be. In fact, one of the great gifts of the Lord is that we can feel pain because pain reminds us that something is not right. See, deep in our hearts, we know our souls remember what it's like to be in the garden. And so when we feel pain, when we feel disaster, we know that, hey, this is not how things ought to be. This is not what we were created for. And so we do all sorts of things to combat this pain, don't we? We do all sorts of things to try to go back to Eden. We place our hope in all sorts of things that we hope can fix our problems. Friends, why do we advocate for um, just laws and social action and education reform? Why do we argue about politics and elections and presidential candidates? Because we hope that these structures can fix what's broken in the world. Why do we hop in and out of relationships and friendships? Why do we take vacations and, for some of us, eat vegan and exercise and run and, and, and try to be fit? Because we hope that that can actually fix what's broken inside. Why do we strive to live moral lives and do good things? Why do we go through religious motions? Because we hope that if we do the right things, God will actually love us and we can fix our relationship with God. Why do people turn to drugs and addictions or turn to pornography or romantic experiences with other partners? Why do we turn to these things that we know are damaging? Well, it's because we hope and believe that that will actually give us a happiness that we can't find otherwise. Because we hope that the happiness will actually be worth the damage. And maybe for some of us in this room, we've given up altogether. There's no, be, there's no point in being full of hope because things are terrible and people are terrible and might as well numb everything out and refuse to engage anything at all. This right here is why we need hope because otherwise things truly are hopeless, are they not? The world is a dark place and in order to deal with the darkness and brokenness, we are prone to place our hope in all sorts of places. We place our hope in our spouse, in our career, our ideal family, our church, political figures, even ourselves. 
And we hope that these things won't let us down, that they'll bring us fulfillment. But friends, let's be real. This is worldly hope. It's hope that's wishful thinking at best. But, as we said earlier, for the Christians, for you and I who would call ourselves Christians, our hope is anchored in the faithfulness of God. And in Genesis 3, we see God's faithfulness, which leads me to my last point. In the midst of all the bad news, we still see the grace of God in Genesis 3. See, he's a God who moves towards sinful, broken people. Have you thought about that? That God, knowing that they had fallen, right? God who knows everything, still moves towards them. Moves towards sinful, broken people. Adam and Eve even try to hide from him, and yet he still seeks them out. He asks them questions gently to draw them out. In fact, if you look at this passage, the first four things that God says to Adam and Eve are questions, trying to draw them out. And then notice what he does at the end, after his creation is done messed up. Genesis 1, verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God clothes Adam and Eve despite their sin, despite their rebellion, despite their shame. He doesn't tell them, hey, just get over it. He doesn't tell them, hey, go figure it out on your own. He doesn't tell them, hey, cover your shame yourself. He shows them grace by providing clothes made of animal skins, which means that something had to die to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. God moves towards humanity and meets us in our brokenness. And despite everything that has gone wrong, God shows that he will undo what's broken. Right here in the middle of this chapter where everything goes wrong, we see this hopeful promise. Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, the Lord God speaking to the serpent. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now listen, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, in the midst of all this, God invokes this promise. He says, hey, there's going to be an offspring, a son coming that's going to be bruised by the serpent. But this son will bruise the serpent's head. One of the woman's descendants will arise to crush the head of the serpent, of Satan. In case there's any doubt, Revelation 12 tells us that the serpent is the devil. And this offspring will deliver the fatal blow to the serpent. But this offspring will not come out of the battle unscathed. His heel will be bruised. Theologians call this passage the Proto-Evangelion. It's the first declaration of the good news of the gospel. And, and when you read the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, God's people are looking forward to this promised serpent crusher. This one who's going to undo the effects of what had been lost in the garden, undo the effects of sin. And we see all these figures arise that look like they might be the one. Right? We see Noah, who's the one righteous person in a world full of wickedness and violence, but it's not him. And then we get Moses, who leads God's people out of slavery, but, but he's not the one. We, we, we see David, who, who is this man after God's own heart, who's this warrior king who defeats God's enemies, who reigns as king, but even he's racked with sin and guilt. And years go by, and centuries go by, and millennia go by, and it 
feels like God has reneged on his promise. Have you ever had to wait for something so long you begin to lose hope? You begin to wonder if, is it even going to happen? God's people waited and longed for what had God, what God had promised way back in the garden. And all that time, sin kept growing. Violence increased. Division grew. Economic inequality persisted. Sexual sin, sexual violence was rampant. And yet they rooted their hope in the faithfulness of God. God, who had covered Adam and Eve's sin in the midst of their shame, they rooted their hope in him. They rooted their hope in the faithfulness of God who had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. They rooted their hope and faith in God who had done all these signs and miracles as he led his people to the promised land. They said, he did it before, won't he do it again? Won't he do it again for us? And they waited and waited wondering what it would be like when the serpent crusher would come. When Derek invited us in intercession this morning, he invited us to imagine what it would be like when, when everything is made untrue, when everything bad is made untrue. They lived with this heavy reality of a world broken by sin and death because they believed that God would actually come through on what he had promised, what he had said he would do. And as sin and brokenness kept spreading its infection, God's people waited and waited and waited in hope until that first Christmas morning when the baby's cry broke out in the manger. I, I love the Christmas song, Oh Holy Night, especially the first line of that song. It says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morning. We sing that, and I think we get numb to it. We get numb to how long the world had been waiting for this picture of Jesus to come. A new morning broke that first Christmas morning because God had sent his son to undo what had been broken in the garden. Long lay the world. For thousands of years, the world had lain in sin and error, pining for hope, and then Jesus appeared, bringing hope, fulfilling hope to a world under the weight of hopelessness. Jesus was the seed of the woman, born of a virgin. And Jesus was bruised by the enemy as he died on the cross, but he was only bruised because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose to life. But in his death and resurrection, he delivered the fatal blow to Satan, defeating sin, shame, and death. At the cross, Jesus destroyed the work of the enemy and restored our relationship with God so that we don't have to earn his favor. And he sent his Holy Spirit to actually live inside his people. So not only, so God doesn't just walk among us, he lives in us. And 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that, that Christ has actually also given us uh, this, this uh, ministry of reconciliation so we could have peace with one another. Hallelujah, Merry Christmas, the hope of the world has come. And yet, maybe you're in here like me, wondering, well, if Jesus came to undo what was broken, then why do I still feel the brokenness? 
Some of you are asking, if this is all true, then why is my marriage still suffering? What about the incredible pain of miscarriage that many of us in this room have walked through this year? I was thinking back on the three funerals I've been to this year alone and the three I wasn't able to make it to. If Jesus came and did what he did, then how come racial tensions and political partisanship and divisions feel higher than ever? Some of you might be wondering, if this is all true, then why am I still sick? If this is all true, if Jesus undoes what's been broken, why do I still have the disorder? How come the holidays are so hard and painful? Maybe you're in here and you're wondering, if this is all true, why do I still sit in despair and depression, saying with the psalmist that darkness is my only friend and my tears are drenched with tears, my pillows is drenched with tears? Why do I still feel hopeless? When Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he began his work, but the Bible promises us that he's not done. In fact, the promise of the Bible is that he's coming back to finish it. That's what the hope of Advent is, is we're, we're looking back at his first coming, but we're hoping for and looking forward to his coming. See, the hope the Bible gives us is not that we're going to die and go to heaven and, and then heaven will be a happy place. The biblical picture we have is one where Jesus comes back to earth to redeem and to restore everything that has been broken, to bring heaven on earth. Not just to take us away to heaven, to bring heaven on earth. In Revelation 21.5, Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm returning to make all new things. He says, behold, I am making all things new. I'm taking what has been broken and I am recreating it and making it whole. He'll restore everything that has been broken. In fact, the book of Revelation in so many ways is a reversal of what we see in Genesis 1-3. through the, the very opening picture of Revelation is, is John's vision of the redemptive work of the Messiah. And then and what we see next is the judgment of Satan as he's defeated and has fallen to the lake of fire. Listen, Jesus is going to bring judgment on all wickedness. And so if, you, if you're in here and you've experienced injustice or abuse, part of our hope is that wickedness will receive its just and due judgment. And the final pictures of Genesis, of Revelation, is this vision of a new heaven and a new earth, a recreated order. What we see is a, a recreation of the Garden of Eden, but instead of a garden, it's a garden city with a river of life running through it. Do you know what we see in Revelation? We see the tree of life. It's back in this garden city. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? It means that we wait in faith. Hope is faith looking forward, and so we wait in faith. It means that we trust God who made the promise in the garden, God who sent Jesus at the right time, God who dealt with our sin and shamed himself. We wait in faith and trust and assurance knowing that he's going to return and finish what he started. It means that we Gladly believe the words of that song, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word and believe him at his word. Just 
to rest upon his promise just to know, thus said the Lord, and because the Lord says so, I can bank on it. We wait in hope, looking forward to see how he will restore all things. If you're in here and you're not a believer, friend, can I invite you that's not to, too late to jump in on the party. In Christ, you can actually be restored to God, forgiven of everything, and you get to live in this new reality that he has created. Where we're part of a new community longing for his return. Can I invite you to join us in that hope by putting your faith in Jesus because he is faithful. And for those of us in this room who are Christians, we can wait and hope knowing that Jesus has already crushed the head of the enemy. He's already made peace with God. So we can wait and hope for his return by looking back at the faithfulness of God and sending Jesus at Christmas. This season is a reminder that God is a God who keeps his promises. God is a God who does not leave us alone. God is a God who, even though we think he's taken a long time, even though we think he might be late, he's never late. He shows up. We hope by remembering his promises. We hope by remembering that God is a God who keeps his promises because that's who God is. We hope by remembering that he's a God who takes beautiful, broken, busted things like you and me and makes beautiful things out of it. And we wait and hope by displaying to each other and displaying to the world where our hope is. Our hope's not in our family, ultimately. Our hope's not in a system or structure. Our hope is not in a new law. Hope is in the king who has come and will come again to make all things new. Friends, can you pray with me?